From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning, I'm Jack Palaznik. A dean from the University of Nevada, Reno, says his work in making education accessible for students makes him particularly qualified for Illinois State University's presidency. Donald Easton Brooks made his case for the open job of ISU president in a public forum Thursday. He highlighted a number of successful programs he's helped develop that have expanded access to higher education and dual credit programs in high school. We're intentional by saying we're removing barriers so that all who wants to participate feel that they have an opportunity to participate. Easton Brooks is one of four candidates vying for the top job at ISU. Interim President Andave Tarhuli is also in the running. Two more candidates will be announced next week. The State Educational Labor Relations Board has recognized the United Faculty of ISU. That's a newly formed union of tenured and tenure-track faculty at Illinois State University. Associate Professor Mark Zablocki belongs to the union. We you know, really love this institution and want it to be the best that it can be, and we really feel that now is the time for a substantial um, investment in our faculty and our students and our institutional infrastructure. You know, we want to continue to be one of the best institutions in the state. The bargaining unit will begin negotiations with ISU for its first contract next week. And Rivian won't be producing many more vehicles this year at its plant in Normal than the 57,000 delivery vans and pickup trucks it made last year. Part of the reason is a several-week shutdown of the plant scheduled for the second quarter. Rivian CEO RJ Scaringe says changes in the plant will speed up production by nearly a third. That increased line rate will ultimately translate to lower conversion costs, you know, reduced hours per unit within the plant. In an earnings call, Scaringe also said the shutdown will let Rivian rework its process using different parts and a simpler design, which will also lower costs. Rivian hopes to begin to turn a slight profit on the delivery vans and pickup trucks it makes in the fourth quarter. Rivian lost about $43,000 per vehicle it delivered in the fourth quarter. The loss for the quarter was $606 million. I'm Jack Palesnik. Support for WGLT and WGLT.org comes from PNC Financial Services. The arts can inspire, spark imagination, and bring people together. That's why PNC is committed to supporting the arts in the communities they serve. PNC, local teams making a difference in central Illinois. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases, in a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The social media site Reddit will soon be known as RDDT on the New York Stock Exchange. Becoming a public company is considered to be a sign that Reddit wants to grow its presence and profile. But why now? We're joined by NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen, who is here to explain. Good morning to you, Bobby. Hey, good morning. So why now? Yeah, the short answer is it's really been a long time coming, right? But let's back up for a moment. Reddit was founded back in 2005, which feels like forever ago now. 
by Steve Huffman and Alexis Ohanian. And they launched the company from their dorm at the University of Virginia. You know, they were these two kind of like nerdy gamers and they launched the site as a place, you know, for people to gather and chit chat anonymously in this very freewheeling way about politics, culture. They were sharing memes. But it's had a rocky history, Michelle. The company's had many, many ups and downs over the years until pretty recently in the company's history. Reddit was known for its, you know, laissez-faire approach to online speech. You know, for, for a long time, it was sort of the Wild West on Reddit, right? And there's been a lot of racism, a lot of harassment, a lot of trolls, leaked celebrity photos, you name it. For a while, it was a really dark place. Okay, so then what happened? Right. Well, in recent years, Reddit has tried to clean up its act. It now has strict rules for what is allowed and what isn't. Though, of course, it's far from flawless. Yeah, remember the whole GameStop meme stock craze? That was all started and fueled on Reddit. Anyway, the company now is, is really working hard to try to polish its image, right? And with this push, it's trying to make more money. It's started charging some developers for access to its site, developers who were, you know, making these third-party apps that lots of people were using to access Reddit. The company said, you know, it was just done giving stuff away for free. CEO Steve Huffman uh, talked to NPR last year and said the company is nearly 20 years old and that, quote, it's time that we grow up and start behaving like an adult company. Hmm, that's interesting. That's an interesting phrase. So I guess I'm thinking that uh, an adult company means make money. So how does Reddit make money? Well, like like all social media platforms, advertising, right? But Reddit, like the rest of the online world right now, is really dealing with a pretty intense pullback in digital advertising. So Reddit is having to reinvent. And so like everyone else in tech right now, it's turned to artificial intelligence. But it sees dollar signs in being a customer of AI, which is unique. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, Reddit is inking deals with AI companies to license the vast corpus of content on Reddit. So all these comments and images and funny back and forths, all of that will be used to train AI models like ChatGPT and Google's Gemini. Uh, and Reddit is going to be paid for it now, right? These licensing deals could become a serious line of revenue for Reddit. And they are going to need it because now they're pitching investors and Reddit is not a profitable company. So, uh, you know, squeezing as much as they can to try to find new ways to make money is really the focus right now. Bobby, before we let you go, could you say more about Reddit becoming a publicly traded stock? Is there anything about their announcement that d jumps out to you? Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing is pretty unusual, and it's that Reddit plans on setting aside stock for regular users of the site. And for some of them, this will be determined by so-called karma. And this is not, you know, spiritual goodwill. <laughs> karma in Reddit terms is a score that the website gives that gauges their contributions to the Reddit community. So how often they post, how positive those posts are. And, you know, these folks, you know, the people who moderate 100,000 message boards on Reddit are doing it in an unpaid way. They're just very passionate about it. And so the company says they hope allowing Reddit users to have a chance to buy stock as part of this IPO will be their way of giving back to these power users that really have made Reddit exist for years and years now. That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Bobby, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Now, from the Planet Money team, we have the story of a legal dispute based on an obscure law. It starts with a man suing over the most important economic entanglement of his life, his marriage. Here's Erica Barris. A few years ago, after Keith King found out his wife was having an affair and they got divorced, he reconnected with an old friend. He found out that his friend's spouse had also cheated. 
And she's like, yeah, I'm suing the person that my um, husband cheated with. I'm suing him. I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? She was talking about a type of lawsuit called a heart bomb tort. You probably know what a tort is. It's where someone is injured and they sue for damages. Like the lawsuit over McDonald's hot coffee. A heart bomb tort is like that, but for love. Heart bomb, B-A-L-M, like think about like chapstick or something, bomb. It's supposed to be like it's healing a broken heart. This is Jill Hasday, a law professor at the University of Minnesota. Despite this image of it being used to heal a broken heart, heart bomb torts actually look at marriage in this very unromantic way, in an economic way. Marriage is for most people the most important economic decision of their lives. It's a tremendous economic interweaving. And go back, back in time, the economic part of marriage was even more pronounced. Heart bomb torts date back hundreds of years. And this is how they were often used. Say a woman was engaged to a man, but he deceived her. The deceived woman could sue the would-have-been husband, claiming a breach of promise, like essentially a broken contract. You have to keep in mind that the social and economic pressure to get married, especially for women, is almost overwhelming. Back then, these heart bomb lawsuits were a form of economic protection for women. But in the 1930s, they began going away. There's a wave of states getting rid of these until you just don't see these cases, except in North Carolina, which has a robust <laughs> alienation of affections case law. Yes, North Carolina, where Keith King lives, and where another kind of heart bomb lawsuit is prevalent. That's one where you sue the person who meddled in your marriage. And it's used by men and women alike. There are still like 200 heart bomb lawsuits filed every year. Keith sued the man his wife had had an affair with. The judge awarded him damages of $8.8 million. With that decision, the judge essentially put a price on the dissolution of Keith's marriage and on his heartache. So do you have $8.8 million No, now? Mm -mm, I don't. The other man actually filed for bankruptcy after the lawsuit. Now, that doesn't make his debt go away, but unless he gets a bunch of money someday, Keith has nothing to collect on. So Keith, who wanted a bomb for his broken marriage, he didn't get that. And he also didn't get any money. I'm Erica Barris in PR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. This is NPR News. Though we are expecting highs in the 50s today, chances for a rain snow mix will move in tonight welcome to friday and thank you for listening to 89.1 wglt the relationship between black and jewish communities is as storied as it is fraught the israel hamas war is straining this grand alliance that story in eight minutes
Support for the leadoff on WGLT and WGLT.org comes from the Central Illinois Regional Airport in Bloomington, where Allegiant flies nonstop to Tampa. St. Pete, Florida beaches are just one flight away. Close, convenient, CIRA. More at CIRA.com. The Central Illinois Bridge Academy is looking to expand in year three. That's one of the things you need to know to start your day for Friday, February 23rd. I'm Ryan Denham, and this is WGLT's The Lead Off. Now let's lead off with Central Illinois Bridge Academy, which serves students with serious mental health conditions from public schools in McLean, DeWitt, Logan, and Livingston counties. Right now they have 27 students. Next year, they hope to serve more. WGLT's Melissa Ellen reports. At Bridge Academy, students grades 6 through 12 get a tailored school experience with mental health professionals on hand. Lexington Schools Superintendent Paul Daters says he knows the school is helping students in his district. This program is is simply put, saving lives. The school has served 52 students since opening in 2022, and in an effort to expand, Director Trisha Malat says they are looking to hire another teacher. This would mean they could accept more students. Down the line, Bridge may also start accepting fifth graders. Before any of that, Malat says Bridge is celebrating a milestone. This spring, Bridge will have its first full graduating class. Four seniors are expected to receive diplomas. Many of them joined us last academic year, and so it's been cool to see their growth and and where they're at and where they're going. This doesn't happen with all Bridge students, as some matriculate back into their public schools. The four graduating students are finishing off academics at Bridge, but they still get to walk with their public school's graduating classes. Malat says all of them are considered successes. For the leadoff, I'm Melissa Allen. Here's some other stories we're following in the WGLT newsroom. The Bloomington Normal NAACP is hosting a voter empowerment workshop tomorrow at 1 at Mount Pisgah Baptist Church in Bloomington. The nonpartisan workshop is free and open to the public. A closed rest area on eastbound Interstate 74 between Bloomington Normal and Peoria will remain shut down for the foreseeable future. The Mackinac Dells facility closed last April for an undisclosed sewage issue. And Eureka College is getting a radio station. The FCC has approved a construction permit for the station that will be broadcast at 103.1 FM. You can find more on these stories at WGLT.org. Tenured and tenure-track faculty at Illinois State University are officially unionized. The United Faculty of ISU was recognized by the Illinois Educational Labor Relations Board in January, and the union begins negotiating with the university on its first contract next week. WGLT's Lindsay Jones spoke with union member and associate professor Mark Zablocki about the years-long effort to organize. Despite our best efforts, we didn't reach every single faculty member, but we, we reached a vast majority of them. And, you know, there were several of us, you know, we have a saying that uh, many hands make light work. So we had, you know, a lot of folks, um, you know, having these conversations and one-on-one conversations. And I think a couple of things came out of that. You know, one was that we really kind of broke out of our silos a little bit. We have seven colleges, you know, numerous departments. And it was interesting to hear some of the same issues coming up over and over, no matter what department we went into um, or we were, you know, who we were talking to. And then I think the secondly was it, it was just really um, a great way to establish a, a strong network um, by developing these relationships you know, across colleges and across departments. What were some of those issues that kept coming up in those conversations with other faculty members? You know, some of the big issues that came up were, number one, were salary and comp- uh, compensation, so being able to get 
um, steady raises, cost of living increases, um, and dealing with salary compression. That's when um, faculty wages stagnate. So what happens is, you know, somebody who may have been here for 20 years might only be making just a little bit more than somebody who was recently hired. If raises are not sort of keeping pace with, you know, the market value of incoming employees, you know, that's kind of what happens is you see very kind of a shrinkage of the difference between um, salaries. And then salary inversion happens when it's kind of taking it to the extreme where, um, somebody gets hired at a higher salary than somebody who's been there for a number of years. So those are you know issues that we are you know planning to um, you know talk about and negotiate on. Is there a sense that other universities are more competitive with faculty salaries than ISU might be? Um, well, one thing we learned that we were amongst the lowest paid uh, faculty in the state, um, and I think one of the outcomes of this will be a fair contract that is comparable with other in state institutions. Did you expect that when you heard that? <laughs> I No, I did not. Ex- I, I was a little bit surprised, um, but then we looked at the numbers and I was like, yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, so I think that was, you know, that was a, a driving issue as well. And um, together, you know, we've joined the University Professionals of Illinois 4100. It's our local. It also includes seven other universities. So that will also kind of, I think, enhance our collective power, especially at the state level where we, you know, ISU has been underfunded in per pupil expenditures for a long time. Um, You know, we have talks with some state legislators. Um, We're hoping to advocate for uh, a higher level of funding. Any other issues on the minds of faculty and union members? Um, The second was um, workload. We have a lot of faculty members, almost 80% said they were working more than 40 hours a week, with a third of those saying they were working more than 50 hours a week. And it really impacted their ability to do research. So if we're kind of shifting to a research-focused, more research-focused institution, um, that's something that'll be neat. You know, faculty workload will be need to taken into consideration. When you gave a public comment about the union um, to the board of trustees at a meeting last week, you mentioned something about student mental health being an important advocacy point. Can you say more about that? Right. Well, faculty are you know the first contact that many students have with this institution. Um, so if they're unable to access resources on campus, um, like social. Ser- um, uh, mental health services or wellness, mm-hmm. you know, they may come to faculty and faculty are not, most of us are not trained in how to, you know, address mental health issues with students. So, you know, when we hear stories about having them having to wait for two months to, for an appointment um, and not being able to get in, you know, if there was a potential car- crisis situation, you know, it's concerning. And, you know, we believe that, um, you know, as a faculty union, we can better advocate to get those resources for student mental health. That was ISU faculty union member and associate professor Mark Zablocki speaking with WGLT's Lindsay Jones. Before we let you go, the Bloomington Kiwanis Pancake Days are back tomorrow and Sunday from 7.30 to noon at the Bloomington Center for the Performing Arts. And that's it for today. I'm Ryan Denham. Thanks to our producer, Rosalie Trebeck. You can subscribe to The Lead Off on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Paul Brandt. They're really, really good. I'm just accustomed to having them on. I can watch TV with my wife now and 
we can set the volume where it's okay for her and it's great for me. Paul's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at progressivecommercial.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Conjure up this image. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel with his big white beard marching alongside Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965's march from Selma to Montgomery. They're all wearing Hawaiian lays. It's an iconic moment from the civil rights era. It also represented the peak of the so-called Grand Alliance in which Black and Jewish leaders fought together for civil rights. That was then. This is now. I think the relationship is on life support. And people of good faith are working to try to solve the problem and and to heal the shattered fragments of the relationship. That's Terrence Johnson, professor of African-American religious studies at Harvard Divinity School. He says, in part, that's because of the Israel-Hamas war. He's co-author of Blacks and Jews in America, an invitation to dialogue. And I spoke with him and his co-author, Jacques Berlinerblau, recently. He's professor of Jewish civilization at Georgetown. I started by asking them both about this historic Grand Alliance. The Grand Alliance is really the assemblage of the talented 10th that W. Du Bois imagined, a group of elite African-American leaders working across racial and religious lines to advocate for the masses in terms of voting rights and desegregation. And this sort of leadership went on to work with Jewish leaders with the founding of the NAACP in 1909 and the Urban League a year later. In some respects, you know, those organizations represented the dream team of Black and Jewish leaders, mostly men, unfortunately, but leaders nonetheless who wanted to, in many ways, address sort of the lingering problems of racial inequality and religious discrimination. Jack, do you want to weigh in here too? Absolutely. We could mention Brown versus Board of Ed in 1954, the Civil Rights Act of 1957, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. These were monumental accomplishments, and they came through the cooperation of these leaders in both communities. One thing Terrence and I have noticed is today's Black-Jewish relationship is encased in amber from the civil rights era. And I don't think it's properly understood. And until we properly understand it, we might not be able to make sense of current political developments. I'd love to hear more about that. You say it's encased in amber, as in frozen in time and it hasn't shifted? It's frozen in this snow globe moment of what are truly staggering achievements on the national level. But simmering underneath the surface were tensions between African Americans and Jewish Americans, as well as, and probably even more importantly, tensions within these communities themselves that doomed or troubled or problematized any possibility of a true functioning Grand Alliance. I agree with you, Jacques, but also want to just push you a bit and argue that what I think these leaders failed to acknowledge, or at least acknowledge in their strategies, right, was the role of race and religion. And remember, who was considered human in this country? 
Anglo-Americans, right? Jews were corrupted because of their blood and blacks were inferior because we didn't have a soul. And those fundamental issues are what we're haunted by now and what we hear with Black Lives Matter protests and related outcries around anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism. They say much of the tension today stems from the growing number of Black spiritual leaders and activists speaking up in support of Palestinian rights and against the punishing Israeli military campaign in Gaza. To many Jewish Americans, that can feel painful after October 7th, when Hamas carried out the most deadly attack on Israel in its history. I ask them both if the sympathies towards Palestinian pain and Jewish pain need to be mutually exclusive. I would say most people recognize and will acknowledge the state of Israel's existence, and they will acknowledge the Holocaust and Jewish pain. I think at this moment, it becomes very difficult because we market sort of Black pain. We never talk publicly about Jewish pain. My friends don't hear their Jewish friends saying, we don't have a friend in the world. Look what happened on October 7th. Those conversations are often held within private settings. And I think the more African-Americans can learn of the kind of ongoing vulnerability of our Jewish brothers and sisters, I think more of that language will be incorporated into their political strategies. One thing I wish to say is Jewish liberals in particular are probably more depressed, I would even say concussed, than I've ever seen them because they're stuck between an authentic concern for the rights and dignity of Palestinian people and obvious filial concern for the longevity and safety of the state of Israel. And the policies of the current government of Israel are making it very, very difficult for Jewish liberals and Jewish leftists to reconcile the two. I can't recall a harder moment in the history of American Judaism to hold these two positions. This is a fraught, tense moment for this community, and I think many in the community feel that they have no voice, they have no representation, and they feel stuck. With so much history shared between these communities, I closed by asking Jacques and Terence how these relationships might be repaired and why it matters. One reason to hope that the relationship finds a new footing is the sheer awesome political, artistic, cultural intelligence of these two communities working in concert. So in that sense, there's hope for optimism because of the tremendous dynamism and talent within both communities. Hmm. Terrence? You know, I was thinking of Abraham Heschel, who described this idea in 1963 of the Exodus is ongoing. And he said it was easier for the children of Israelite to cross the Red Sea than for a black or Negro to cross the line at a university in the U.S. And there's something about this story that allows us to kind of peek into history and then figure out what's missing and whose voices are not there. We can now really interrogate all the stories we were given because the stories we were handed to us created this moment. My sense is that the narratives will in some ways revive a moment that's much bigger than what we can imagine. That is Terrence Johnson, professor of African-American religious studies at Harvard Divinity School, and Jacques Berlinerblau, professor of Jewish civilization at Georgetown University. They co-wrote Blacks and Jews in America, an invitation to dialogue. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Leila Falden. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
Good morning and thank you for listening to 89.1 WGLT. Welcome to Friday. I'm Ariel Jones. Early voting is now underway for the March 19th primary election. You can get prepared by visiting our voter guide at WGLT.org. You will find links to early voting sites, vote by mail information, plus our latest reporting on important McLean County races. Visit our voter guide at WGLT.org election. It's 7 o'clock. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to. And you're listening to. You're listening to NPR News. Listen to the NPR Newscast live every hour on the hour. Listen on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. Part of the NPR Network. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal. Part of the NPR Network. Good morning. Tomorrow marks two years since Russia attacked Ukraine. The war has forced millions of Ukrainians from their homes. In this hour, we'll hear why many residents of one city are refusing to leave. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Nikki Haley was born in South Carolina and was its governor, but she might lose the state's presidential primary. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. Donald Trump's fame is one reason. Another has to do with where the state's Republican loyalties lie. Also, how the fishing industry in Maine is recovering after last month's back-to-back storms and how states with abortion restrictions make it stressful for obstetricians to do their jobs. It's Friday, February 23rd. Happy birthday to L.A. native Niecy Nash, the actor and TV host turns 54. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Marking two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, President Biden has announced an extensive new round of sanctions this morning. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the U.S. sanctions also target people connected with the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in an Arctic penal colony. In a statement, President Biden said that if Putin doesn't pay a price for Navalny's death and for the misery and destruction in Ukraine, Putin will keep going and the costs for the U.S. and its NATO allies will only rise. Biden announced more than 500 new sanctions against Russia, targeting Russia's financial sector, defense industrial base, and those connected to the Navalny imprisonment. The U.S. is also imposing export restrictions on nearly 100 entities, which Biden described as providing backdoor support for Russia's war effort. Biden also once again urged Congress to pass a military aid package for Ukraine that has languished for months. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is in Ukraine today. He's expected to repeat assurances that Congress will find a way to deliver aid there to help them resist the Russian invasion. That's despite resistance from some conservative Republicans in Congress. Multiple IVF clinics in the state of Alabama have suspended their treatment for patients following a state Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are considered children. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports state lawmakers are proposing new bills in response. Legislators on both sides of the aisle acknowledge that individuals have invested a large amount of time, resources, and money into IVF treatments. Democrats and some Republicans, including State Senator Tim Melson, have proposed bills to address the issue. This just says that 
a human egg that is fertilized in vitro shall be considered a potential life, but shall not be considered a human life, a human being, or a person, or unborn child until the egg is successfully implanted into the woman's uterus. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has sided with the ruling, while President Joe Biden called the decision unacceptable. From NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. A private company has successfully landed its space probe on the moon. The Odysseus probe touched down yesterday near the moon's south pole. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says the probe is the first American mission to touch down on the lunar surface in more than half a century. A new adventure in science, innovation, and American leadership in space. Well, all of that aced the landing of a lifetime. That landing was initially in doubt. The laser navigation system didn't work properly. Mission managers were able to use backup equipment to successfully help the probe land. This is NPR.